Well, some of you might have uh, decorative plates in your house uh, hanging on your wall, or you might have some fine china that's in a cabinet on display, and you might use those on very, very special occasions, but usually you just keep them put and you look at them. They're too valuable to be using every day. Royal Copenhagen, how many of you have heard of that, that company? Aha, so this might, okay, I hadn't. Uh, has a collection of uh, place settings named Flora Danica. How many have heard of that? Flora Danica? Okay. They're gilded 11 and a half inch dinner plate with perforated border. Retails for anyone $3,500. That's some plate. Now, if you own that plate, you probably wouldn't eat from it. You probably, you might put it in a safe deposit box in a Swiss bank somewhere, but you're not going to use that every day. It's too valuable to be, to be uh, very practical to you. And I think that's somehow, um, sometimes how people see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's valuable. Yes, it's, it's extremely valuable and beautiful, but we don't really use it every day. It just kind of hangs there as a decoration for our lives. And yes, the gospel is infinitely valuable and beautiful, but it's also practical every single day, every moment of every single day. The gospel makes a difference every day for the children of God. It really does. God saves you from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. Meaning that when God's Holy Spirit lives in you as a child of God, you are no longer enslaved to sin, but free to apply the gospel in joyful obedience to God. So God saves you and he sets you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Wonderful, but there's still a big problem. Though you are a precious child of God, your flesh still desires the pleasures of sin. Sin still dwells in you, but your spirit desires the pleasures of God because the spirit dwells in you, and so there is a war inside of you every day, a war that is already won by Jesus Christ, but the enemy of sin is still being put to death more and more in your life until its final death is here, and that day is coming soon, my friends. Your flesh wants to abandon God, but your spirit wants God, wants more and more of God, and then we feel that tension in our lives every day, and we need the gospel every day. Applying the gospel to life, you know, it's difficult. It's very difficult, but the Holy Spirit in you helps you desire to apply the gospel and to actually apply the gospel to the hardest situations of your life. This is what God's grace does for you and me. It makes us want to obey God. Uh, It makes us want God's law, to, to do it God's way with incredible gratitude, and then it gives us the power in order to do it. You you head to work on Monday morning, you know how these days go, and everything falls apart from the moment that you show up. I mean, it just goes south from the moment you get there. How will the gospel help you work with joy and self-control and peace with your boss and employees? All right, your spouse all of a sudden is standoffish. You have no idea why. 
There's this ice in the air. You don't know where it came from. You're asking some questions. How will the gospel help you love and serve your spouse? You, you feel like you're not getting through to your children. I mean, you've said it over and over again, and they're still at each other's throats. How will the gospel then shape and inform your approach to your kids in what you say, in the demeanor in which you say it? You have schoolwork to do. Oh, students, little ones, wee ones. You have the schoolwork, the homework. You'd rather be out playing. You've got to do this. How is the gospel going to shape your attitude towards the work that you know you have to do? You don't just admire that priceless plate on the wall. It serves you nourishment every day in every situation. This text might not actually seem immediately relevant to you or helpful to you, so you have to really listen closely and you have to trust the Holy Spirit to teach you something through this. And if you're listening, I promise you there is something good here for all of us. Paul wrote primarily to Pastor Timothy and he wrote to the Ephesian Christians. So as a church, there is something here for us to learn and to glean from. Here are three main things to consider as we head in to verses 9 through 16. Number one, the church must intentionally care for true widows. Number two, old widows have a unique opportunity to serve the church. And number three, young widows should marry and serve their families well. So number one, the church must intentionally care for true widows. This is a big point from verses 1 through 16, and this point is for you, and this point is for me. Last week, we studied verses 1 through 8, and Paul's point was clear. Honor widows who are truly widows. The church needs to do this. The the provision for widows begins with children and grandchildren so that true widows can be effectively cared for and loved and provided for by the church. The church must be ready, must be equipped to care for true widows, which is partly how the gospel plays out in a church. So as you seek to understand and apply verses 9 through 16, you have to understand the big obvious point. The gospel helps us as Christians to take care of widows. That's really important. And that truth should influence how you read and interpret verses 9 through 16. Number two, old widows have a unique opportunity to serve the church. Now, this point takes careful thinking. Uh, Paul said this, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. And I asked the question, enrolled in what? Enrolled in what, Paul? Come on. And, and I'll be honest, and this, I don't know, I hope this doesn't make you insecure when you hear your pastor say this. I'm not sure I know what list Paul's referring to. Um, and I've studied this for quite a while here, and I'm still not 100% sure. But whatever list that he has in mind, it exists to care for widows and to serve and help the church. That we know. So is this a master list of widows who should receive financial help from the church? Well, maybe, but I don't think so. Notice the age requirement and qualifications. If this list referred simply to financial statement or assistance, rather, then younger widows would seem to be ineligible for the financial assistance, as verse 11 suggests, which, which seems contrary to 
verse 3 and 5, which say to honor true widows and then explain that true widows are without age restrictions. You don't see age restrictions in those verses. And then marriage in verse 14 would seem like the only option for young widows, and God may not desire all young widows to get remarried. So there's, there's, a, there's a few things surrounding that that just don't seem right with that. If this enrollment was simply for financial assistance, it would seem discriminatory against the younger widows, which seems contradictory to the point Paul is trying to make. Uh, So what's the list? Well, listen to it again. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Now, to me, those, those verses sound like qualifications, very similar to the qualifications given earlier to overseers and deacons. So those on this list, these widows, must have this great proven track record for ministry. Notice, number one, 60 or older, mature, okay, beyond childbearing, and essentially retired. Now, I had to put this in the Guinness Book of World's Record. I looked this up. The oldest natural childbirth, do you know what age it is? Natural now, without any, you know, heavy stuff, 59 years old in the UK. That's like, whoa, my goodness, now, that's not to think of the biblical, biblical uh, examples that we have, but 59 years old. And also, widows, um, many widows don't remarry past 60, okay? Number two, faithful as a wife. Similar to an overseer and a deacon, she had to have been a one-man woman. Enrolled widows needed to have practiced fidelity when they were married. Number three, known for good works. Enrolled widows needed to have a reputation of spirit-filled good works. Number four, a child-rearer. They needed experience raising children, either their own or even working with with orphans or something like that. Uh, Number five, hospitable. Traveling was very, very different back then, much harder to do. Hospitality was essential for Christians to be able to to travel well. So enrolled uh, widows needed to have a proven track record of caring for their guests. Number six, a washer of feet. Washing the feet of guests in your home when they came in was a common custom of that day. If you can think of sandals and all that sandals bring with them into the home, And notice it follows hospitality. So there's a connection to the home here. So Paul simply meant these widows needed to practice this uh, humble Christ-like service to the people that were in their homes. Seven, a caretaker for the afflicted. When people suffer hardship, enrolled widows are the kind of women that step in and they get it done. They care for the afflicted. They care about people who are down and out. And they, uh, they give love. They give compassion. They give practical service and skillful assistance. And eight, proven devotion for every good work. These enrolled widows have applied the gospel to their lives. So here's what Paul is getting at. These enrolled widows needed to be women of exemplary godliness, exemplary holiness, who were active servants for Christ, filled with compassion, filled with love. Now, why do you think that was? Why did they need to be this this type of... Well, maybe it meant that they could be on some list, not simply for financial support, 
but also to make some commitment in some way to serve the church in a unique way. So imagine a 65-year-old widow in good health using her singleness to serve the church in ways that others can't, all the while being supported by the church. She could do much good for the honor and glory of God. John Calvin noted this, quote, They were received on the condition that the church should relieve their poverty and that on their part they should be employed in ministering to the poor as far as the state of their health allowed, end of quote. And there is evidence in the early church uh, that a group of widows 60 years or older existed. And from the, the early 3rd century, Tertullian mentioned, quote, that their experienced training in all the affections may have rendered them capable of readily assisting all others with counsel and comfort, end of quote. So we, we see evidence of a group like this back then. Now, I'm not sure what the list was. Uh, but it seems entirely possible that it was a list of certain godly widows tasked with special ministry and supported by the church, which is a far cry from all of the older women saying, we need to step aside so that these younger women coming up, they can do the ministry. So we're just going to kind of retreat into the background. That's a far cry from what this is. These ladies are engaged, and they're doing amazing ministry. Older widows and older women can use their God-given gifts for dynamic, dynamic gospel ministry. You don't retire from gospel ministry. You do it till you don't have a heartbeat. And so these women, they, they, when they engage, great things happen. Great ministry happens through old, mature, godly, hard-working, single women who roll up their sleeves to get a job done, who work for the church, who work for the honor and glory of God, Dr. Riken noted this, one of the reasons the church has always been a leader in mercy ministry is that Christian people, especially Christian women, have devoted themselves to all kinds of good deeds. Christians were the first to rescue abandoned babies, the first to set up schools for orphans, the first to develop nursing care, the first to establish homes for the elderly, and so forth, end of quote. It's true. That's true. If you are an older widow, please know that You are really precious to our church, really important to our church, and that God can do amazing gospel ministry through you. Amazing. If you walk by the Spirit, if you love Christ, if you want to see his gospel take over the world, you have to have a heart for this and be exemplary in godliness. Before the third point, let me say... That these older widows may have pledged themselves to singleness and ministry, taken some sort of vow or pledge, uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Number three, young widows should marry and serve their families well. Young widows should marry and serve their families well. You need to keep thinking critically about this. Paul continued in verses 11 and 12, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, please don't misunderstand these verses. You can go to some weird places with these verses. Um, I think younger widows were eligible for church support. Absolutely, I do. And this list likely had a different purpose than just general support. Also, to be clear, Desire for marriage, sex, and child 
uh, bearing children are not ungodly desires, as verse 14 in this passage confirms. To get married is not to abandon the faith. So might this list uh, be referring to those who have taken a pledge, a commitment in some way, to singleness and a special ministry role in the church geared towards compassion? Well, possibly. Possibly. Some scholars understand verses 11 and 12 to mean that younger widows desired marriage so much that they compromised and they married non-Christians, which drew them away from Christ and would lead them to abandoning the Christian faith. And that meaning is possible, but it seems a bit forced to the text. Here's another idea that looks promising. If younger widows were enrolled, pledged to remain single, devoted themselves to special ministry, many would still deep down desire to get married desire to have kids, and, and then that would, um, yeah, would, would be there, but they've already made the pledge, and so they have this desire that they're wrestling with, and then they're drawn away from their pledge. They're drawn away from their commitment that they made, which would equate to abandoning the faith because they're not taking their, their vows or, or pledges seriously, which would incur condemnation. Now, the word pistis, or faith, in verse 12, which is most often referred to as faith, Just trust in Christ. But it can sometimes be translated pledge. That's within the range of the word. So in light of of a natural desire to marry and have children, and in light of the childbearing years, it seems appropriate not to enroll young widows, but to instead to encourage them to get married, to get remarried, which would be a wonderful way for them to serve the Lord and to live out the gospel. Dr. George Knight explains it this way. Verses 11 and 12 indicate that remarriage itself for any enrolled younger widows carries with it an inherent turning from Christ and an inherent judgment. But verse 14 makes it clear that remarriage before being enrolled does not carry that inherent judgment. The difference is that younger widows, by being enrolled, have taken a pledge that they would break by marrying and thus would incur judgment, end of quote. So that's one very good possibility. Now, I'm not wholly convinced of that particular idea, Uh, but it's worth seriously considering. So is it wise, really, part of my questioning here, is it wise, really, for any widow of any age to take a pledge to celibacy? Uh, What if a 60-year-old widow met a wonderful man with a good job? You know what I'm saying. I mean, we have to keep some options open here, folks. So first... No older widow has to take the pledge. She doesn't have to enter into this. There's options there. She could keep the remarriage option open and still receive support. Second, statistically, most older widows don't remarry. Uh, So there's, there's that part of it. They are beyond having children, and perhaps many wouldn't even consider the option of remarriage. And there are women like that, absolutely. So whatever Paul meant exactly, this one point is clear enough, don't enroll young widows. Not a good idea. We want to stay away from that. There are better options for young widows. Um, Paul strengthens this point in verse 13. He says, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. 
Paul knew the tendencies of these young widows, the temptations for young widows. He loved these young widows, and he recommended what would help protect them from sin and would display the gospel in the covenant community of faith. And so he's, he's giving these, these words. So let's say a younger, wim, a younger widow was enrolled. She now had support, okay, and a lot of time on her hands. And so she wasn't remarrying, although she might be distracted by the desires to get remarried. Additionally, instead of caring for a husband, instead of caring for children, she pledged herself to serve in ministry. How might she be tempted in that situation? Number one, idleness or laziness. So there's some connection here with a a young widow's enrollment and laziness. She would have time to bounce from house to house as the social butterfly Hey, 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 without actually doing the ministry that God had her to do. Facebook might have been a part of it. (laughs) Two, gossip, being a praetor, a babbler. She wants the juicy details. She's a tattletale. She's garrulous. That's brand new to me. Never knew that word. Here's what garrulous is, and and it convicted me kind of because I'm like, I can be that way. So here's what garrulous is excessively talkative in a rambling, roundabout manner, especially about trivial matters. So with support of the church, house to house, this young widow goes, and she's talking to anyone, but she's not doing anything helpful to anyone. It's like she goes into the house, Ooh, girlfriend, sit down. Have I got some news to you? Put on some water for the tea, because this is going to take a while. I've got some things to say. Paul doesn't want that. That is not good for young widows. Three, busybody. This is not busy with meaningful things. This is being a meddler in other people's business. She's poking her nose in business that she shouldn't poke her nose in. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about that? Well, I'd like to get involved with that one. Maybe I should do something. Meddling. Meddling in other people's business. Well, this is what young widows are prone to learn. Destructive habits that are not honoring to God and Here's the biggest part, bring reproach to the gospel. Also, might false doctrine be a part of this? Remember what Paul said about false teachers at the beginning of 1 Timothy. Young widows might wander away into vain discussion. Young widows might might devote themselves to irreverent, silly myths. Paul even said in 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7, consider this carefully, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at any knowledge of the truth. That happens through the television every day. Of course, it would be very unwise to caricature or to stereotype young widows. We don't want to do that. They're not all the same. But understand that Paul wisely stated some real concerns here and some good reasons why a young widow should not be enrolled. There was something much, much better for young widows. Let the old widows be put on the list and pledge themselves and serve the church compassionately. Paul is giving wise boundaries for the household of God, boundaries to maximize the gospel's influence in the world, the advance. So here's what Paul recommended to young widows. It's it's not the only option, okay? But it is the foremost option for most young widows. Paul said this, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Paul used the little conjunction un, meaning therefore. 
So considering all that Paul had just said about the temptations and everything for young widows, um, in verses 11 to 13, Paul then recommends one primary option to help protect those widows against sin, marriage and childbearing. And verse, in verse 15, after Paul commends marriage, he used the little conjunction, gar, meaning because. So instead of enrollment, why were marriage and childbearing so strongly recommended for young widows? Because some of these young widows had already strayed after Satan. Just in case that's not clear, that's a really bad thing. You shouldn't go after Satan. You should be going after Christ. These widows, they had already turned from God. They had turned from the faith. Perhaps they had turned from their pledge or their vow or their commitment and faithfulness to the church. Whatever exactly Paul meant, some young widows had abandoned the faith, had turned from Christ, and were following Satan. And Paul's good solution, which would protect and sanctify these young widows, was marriage and childbearing which I think has a connection to be fruitful and multiply from Genesis 1.28. And keep in mind, this was coming from an apostle of Jesus Christ who had been given a commission. So there's weight to this. Consider Paul's recommendation. Number one, get married. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9, Paul said about widows now, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, that parallels verses 11 and 14. Marriage is an incredible way for women to be loved, cared for, provided for, and to pursue the good pleasures of marriage while being protected and sanctified in them. Number two, bear children. Young widows are still in the childbearing years. The desire for children is good. Instead of being enrolled, they should act on their desire and be fruitful and multiply, as God said in Genesis 1, 28. Number three, manage their households. A wife and a mother is the queen of her household. She should oversee it with care and skill, managing the details for the honor and glory of God. She should raise her children well in the Lord. Her tasks are many. They are tiresome, but they are honorable, they are praiseworthy, and they are pleasing to God. Her investment into her family is never a waste. It is fruitful gospel ministry. Caring for her husband and caring for her children and the affairs of her household is a demanding task, but it yields incredible pleasures and yields incredible rewards. Number four, give the adversary no occasion for slander. Her life should be above reproach. She should represent the gospel well and give the enemies of the gospel no reason to slander the gospel. So for many reasons, instead of enrollment, Paul advocated young widows to devote themselves to their husband and to their children. Family is an excellent environment for women to use their gifts. Excellent. But now I have to clarify a few things. Is singleness an option for young widows? We could include any young person. Absolutely. Singleness is not a second-class status. Listen very carefully to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 8. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has 
his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And after he says that, he then expands on singleness as a good idea, as something good. Paul was single. Someone else very important was single, Jesus By commending marriage in 1 Timothy 5, Paul is not condemning singleness. Uh, He called it a gift from God in 1 Corinthians 7. Marriage is good and honors God. Singleness is good and honors God. What if a young widow remarries and can't bear children? Is she second class? No. No. God is sovereign over the womb. He makes no mistakes regarding fertility or infertility. He is good all the time. His divine purpose is always good. A wife can love her husband and can manage her household well even if she has no children. Her childlessness does not make her less of a woman and it does not make her less in the household of God. She may adopt orphans and care for them as her children. She may adopt Uh, She may devote herself to caring to children in many other good ways. Foster care, babysitting, discipleship, orphanage work, after-school programs, mentoring. God can use her mightily in gospel ministry to care for children in other ways, as verse 10 suggests. When Paul says bear children, he does not mean that a woman is cursed or that she is unfaithful if she is unable to have children. It is by God's sovereign plan that she is unable. And so God is telling that precious daughter that there is something else that she can do to glorify him and that is what he has for her. And maybe that is adoption. Trusting in the sovereignty of God over the womb will help a woman love and cherish and serve God with joy in childlessness or as a mother. Her anchor is the king. Her anchor is the sovereignty of God. People want to argue away the sovereignty of God without actually realizing the anchor that it is for everything in their life. Do not get rid of the sovereignty of God, ever. It provides incredible hope because you know there's meaning and there's purpose in the most hard and difficult things in life. Do you think these widows are asking some questions? Why would you take my husband? The sovereignty of God anchors them that he has something for me, something meaningful. I'm not second rate. This is not by mistake. God has a design in this, and he's taking me somewhere for his glory. That's the sovereignty of God. It's precious. Dr. Riken notes this. It's very helpful. He said, that is not to say that each and every single woman must find a husband, which, of course, is up to the providence of God. However, as a general rule, it is good for young widows to devote themselves to the care of their families and to even remarry, and even to remarry. A husband is a gift, but a husband does not define a woman. Singleness is a good gift from God, and God will provide for his young widows and single women when they remain single. Would you consider this thought? Um, As I've said, marriage and Motherhood are not the only option for young widows or single women. Singleness provides amazing 
um, and unique opportunities for gospel ministry. But marriage and children also provide amazing and unique opportunities for women. In our culture, marriage and motherhood have been undervalued in significant ways. Feminism has told lies to women, and it seems like very few people are championing marriage and motherhood as Scripture presents them. Paul was talking about young widows. Don't don't miss that. But as soon as he mentioned marriage, there's an application here for young married women as well. Consider why Paul recommended marriage as you consider your marriage. Consider why he recommended bearing children. Consider what he meant by a wife and mother managing her household. Consider how all of this could remove an opportunity for slander and protect women from sin. Verse 14 gives the framework for wide applications uh, for women and marriage and motherhood. And I also recommend considering Titus 2, verses 3 through 5, alongside of this passage. That would be very helpful. Paul doesn't address every single question here that comes up related to widows. But be sure that marriage, childbearing, motherhood, and managing a household are good and pleasing in the sight of God. Paul strongly commends these things to young widows for good reason, reasons worth considering very carefully. I'll end with verse 16, and this reiterates the point that Paul has been making. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows... Let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Once again, Christian women need to care for the widows in their family. This is the first step of loving and providing for widows. This is how you you live out the gospel in your own family. So let me ask the question, do you have widows in your family? Are you caring for them tenderly? Are you giving them financial assistance if they need it? How are you providing for the widows in your family? My grandmother was widowed from the time that my mother was 10 years old. Uh, four um, young girls at that time. And, and I think my assessment, I never met my, my grandfather uh, who died of leukemia when my, my uh, mom was 10, as I said, and my grandmother never got remarried. And so from my very distant opinion on this, I, I'm not... I think she probably could have been cared for a bit more. Um, she had to go to work, and there are some things there that, that uh, could have perhaps worked out differently for her girls. But this parallels verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And I don't mean to, to throw fingers there. Uh, don't take me too long you know, to the relatives of, of my grandmother. Um, but it's a very serious issue to be caring for those in your, in your family. So Paul exhorted believing women to care for widows so that the church can focus on caring for true widows, those who really, they don't have anybody, and they need help. So Christian women, if you think about this, who don't care for their widowed relatives, not only veil the gospel for their relatives, but add undue burden to the church, hindering the church from maximizing what they can give to true widows who need it. And that's not good. That's not healthy for the household of God. Now, why aren't men mentioned in verse 16? Come on, guys. Like, it's your job, too. you got to care for, for these widows. Well, imagine a widower or single man taking responsibility to care for the needs of a group of widows. Okay? In, in some ways, he could. But in other ways, it would be inappropriate and odd. 
Uh, so same for a married man. Some things are simply, and you'll amen this, I think. You should, because uh, this is good. But some things are simply better handled by women who do a more effective job than men. Okay. So we, we need much grace from God and wisdom from the Spirit to help us apply the gospel in these ways. If we want to be faithful in these things, if we want to be faithful to Christ, then we need to trust Christ to teach us how to be uh, faithful in these things. Like, if you're feeling like me, I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I'm trying. And so we need to just have, you know what? But I want to grow in that. How can we better love our widows here? We're on it. And if enough people do that, Man, our widows are going to be singing when they leave here. Okay, so let's get on that. These three things are a great place to start. Number one, the church must intentionally care for true widows. This is what Jesus would have us do in grateful response to what he has done for us and what he has given us, and then he gives us an imitation to follow. Number two, old widows have a unique opportunity to serve the church. How is our church helping widows grow in the gospel in order to use their gifts for the encouragement and edification of the church? Okay, are you a widow over 60 here this morning? So let me ask you this, widows. What do you think Jesus wants you to do to love and to serve the church, the poor, orphans, or other widows? What might he have in store for you? Number three, young widows should marry and serve their families well. Singleness is a wonderful option and the best option in certain circumstances. But young widows can have an incredible gospel ministry by getting remarried, having children, and managing their households. So Jesus had one ambition in life. Honor and glorify my father. That's it. I'm all about that. And that led him to follow the Spirit and to do incredible acts of righteousness and goodness for people um, by the Spirit's power, including the cross. The cross. And the same spirit that indwelt Jesus indwells you and can lead you to do incredible ministry for the gospel. Good works that by trusting Christ and walking by the spirit that will just display the gospel in beautiful ways. Um, admire the gospel, but, but allow it to serve you every day as you seek to apply it to everything uh, use it, eat with it, allow it to nourish you so that you get benefit from it, from it every day, including how you act in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. God wants these verses to shape you, Jerusalem church. God wants these verses to put you into action some way and to help you be more effective in how you love one another. And I'll end with these words from Jesus, which, which really put a nice cap on the end of this to challenge us to act on what we have just heard the past two weeks. Jesus said this, just as I have loved you. Do you know how much that is? You look at Christ and what he's done for us? My goodness, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The way to show, like, I'm serious about Jesus, love each other. Then you're serious about Jesus. You're not interested in loving each other. You're not interested in pouring yourself out in sacrifice for your brother and sister in Christ who you sit in the pews with every week. If you're not interested in that, you don't love Jesus. You're not on his page. This is how we mark disciples. I love you. I want to lay my life out for you. I want to give. Yes, we're all struggling. No, we don't do it perfectly. But that heart has got to be there because Jesus gave us a new heart to do that as he did. 
You see how that works? So like a good time to rethink whether you're, you know, man, is this really serious? How well do you love your brothers and sisters? Are you serious about living this stuff out? Are you serious about trusting Jesus to help you when you can't? And you say, he's going to show up. He's going to do this because I'm having a really hard time now. Do you know what they said about me? Do you know what? Jesus shows up and he gives you what you need to love. But you got to trust him. And his grace is good. So 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16, what we looked at these two weeks is in part how we love one another. we got to get on this, namely widows. So let's make sure that the widows in Jerusalem church, in our families and in Jerusalem church, feel the love, feel the grace, feel the provision of God through, through what? Through us. Through us. Let's make sure we get this one right. Father, thank you for... Your grace, God, forgive me where I have not shown love and tenderness to widows as I should. If I rewind the clock, boy, could have I as a teenager loved on my grandma more. Uh, God, forgive me for that. Forgive us for how we overlook the needs that are right under our nose. I pray that, you know, non-Christians, they take care of their families. So as Christians, how much more should we just love selflessly sacrifice for those in our family. So God, I pray for the widows of our church. Would you remind them of how precious they are to us? How much we need them to be a healthy church? And that they have so much they can offer if they follow Christ and are committed to ministry. There are unique opportunities for them. God, would you strengthen them and encourage them to do those things for your honor and your glory? And God, I pray that at Jerusalem Church, we would be a church that does not concern ourselves with lights, camera, action, but concerns ourselves with loving one another, everybody. And that, God, we would, we would live out the gospel in this way of caring for our true widows. Uh, God, help us. Uh, help us in these things. All for your glory, we pray. Amen.